Chapter 4. A Bushel of Learning Scarcely had we settled into the strawberry pink villa before Mother decided that I was running wild and that it was necessary for me to have some sort of education. But where to find this on a remote Greek island? As usual, when a problem arose, the entire family flung itself with enthusiasm into the task of solving it. Each member had his or her own idea of what was best for me, and each argued with such fervour that any discussion about my future generally resulted in an uproar. Plenty of time for him to learn, said Leslie. After all, he can read, Carney. I can teach him to shoot, and if we bought a boat, I could teach him to sail. But dear, that wouldn't really be much use to him later on, Mother pointed out, adding vaguely, unless he was going into the merchant navy or something. I think it's essential that he learns to dance, said Margot or else he'll grow up into one of those awful tongue-tied hobbledehoys. Yes, dear, but that sort of thing can come later. He should be getting some sort of grounding in things like mathematics and French, and his spelling's appalling. Literature, said Larry, with conviction. That's what he wants, a good solid grounding in literature. The rest will follow naturally. I've been encouraging him to read some good stuff. But don't you think Rabelais is a little old for him? asked Mother doubtfully. Good clean fun, said Larry airily. It's important that he gets sex in its right perspective now. You've got a mania about sex, said Marlowe primly. It doesn't matter what we're discussing, you always have to drag it in. Well, if he wants, what he wants is a healthy outdoor life. If you learn to shoot and sail, began Leslie. Oh, stop talking like a bishop. You'll be advocating cold baths next. The trouble with you is you get in one of your damned supercilious moods where you think you know best and you won't even listen to anyone else's point of view. With a point of view as limited as yours, you could hardly expect me to listen to it. Now, now, there's no sense in fighting, said Mother. Well, Larry's so bloody unreasonable. I like that, said Larry indignantly. I'm far and away the most reasonable member of the family. Yes, dear, but fighting doesn't solve the problem. What we want is someone who can teach Jerry and who will encourage him in his interests. He appears to only have one interest, said Larry bitterly, and that's this awful urge to fill things with animal life. I don't think he ought to be encouraged in that. Life is fraught with danger as it is. I went to light a cigarette only this morning and a damn great bumblebee flew out of the box. It was a grasshopper with me, said Leslie gloomily. Yes, I think that sort of thing ought to be stopped, said Margot. I found the most revolting jar of wriggling things on the dressing table of all places. He doesn't mean any harm, poor little chap, said Mother pacifically. He's so interested in all these things. I wouldn't mind being attacked by bumblebees if it led anywhere, Larry pointed out. But it's just a phase. He'll grow out of it by the time he's 14. He's been in this phase from the age of two, said Mother, and he's showing no signs of growing out of it. Well, if you insist on stuffing him full of useless information, I suppose George could have a shot at teaching him, said Larry. That's a brainwave, said Mother delightedly. Will you go over and see him? I think the sooner he starts, the better. Sitting under the open window in the twilight, with my arm around Roger's shaggy neck, I had listened with interest, not unmixed with indignation, to the family discussion on my fate. Now it was settled... I wondered vaguely who George was, and why it was so necessary for me to have lessons. But the dusk was thick with flower scents, and the olive groves were dark, mysterious and fascinating, 
I forgot about the imminent danger of being educated and went off with Roger to hunt for glowworms in the sprawling brambles. I discovered that George was an old friend of Larry's who had come to Corfu to write. There was nothing very unusual about this, for all Larry's acquaintances in those days were either authors, poets or painters. It was George, moreover, who was really responsible for our presence in Corfu, for he had written such eulogistic letters about the place that Larry had become convinced we could live nowhere else. Now George was to pay the penalty for his rashness. He came over to the villa to discuss my education with Mother, and we were introduced. We regarded each other with suspicion. George was a very tall and extremely thin man who moved with the odd disjointed grace of a puppet. His lean skull-like face was partially concealed by a finely pointed brown beard and a pair of large tortoiseshell spectacles. He had a deep melancholy voice, a dry and sarcastic sense of humour. Having made a joke, he would smile in his beard with a sort of vulpine pleasure which was quite unaffected by anyone else's reactions. Gravely, George set about the task of teaching me. He was undeterred by the fact that there were no school books available on the island. He simply ransacked his own library and appeared on the appointed day armed with a most unorthodox selection of tomes. Somberly and patiently, he taught me the rudiments of geography from the maps in the back of an ancient copy of Pear's Cyclopedia. English from books that ranged from Wilde to Gibbon, French from a fat and exciting book called Le Petit Larousse, and mathematics from memory. From my point of view, however, the most important thing was that we devoted some of our time to natural history, and George meticulously and carefully taught me how to observe and how to note down observations in a diary. At once, my enthusiastic but haphazard interest in nature became focused, for I found that by writing things down, I could learn and remember much more. The only mornings that I was ever on time for my lesson were those which were given up to natural history. Every morning at nine, George would come stalking through the olive trees, clad in shorts, sandals and an enormous straw hat with a frayed brim, clutching a wedge of books under one arm, swinging a walking stick vigorously. Good morning. The disciple awaits the master agog with anticipation, I trust, he would greet me with a saturnine smile. In the little dining room of the villa, the shutters would be closed against the sun, and in the green twilight, George would loom over the table, methodically arranging the books. Flies, heat-drugged, would crawl slowly on the walls or fly drunkenly about the room, buzzing sleepily. Outside, the cicadas were greeting the new day with shrill enthusiasm. Let me see, let me see, George would mummer, running a long forefinger down our carefully prepared timetable. Yes, yes, mathematics. If I remember rightly, we were involved in the Herculean task of discovering how long it would take six men to build a wall if three of them took a week. I seem to recall that we have spent almost as much time on this problem as the men spent on the wall. Ah, well, let us gird our loins and do battle once again. Perhaps it's the shape of the problem that worries you, eh? Let's see if we can make it more exciting. He would droop over the exercise book pensively, pulling at his beard. Then, in his large, clear writing, he would set the problem out in a fresh way. 
If it took two caterpillars a week to eat eight leaves, how long would four caterpillars take to eat the same number? Now, apply yourself to that. While I struggled with the apparently insoluble problem of the caterpillar's appetite, George would be otherwise occupied. He was an expert fencer and was at that time engaged in learning some of the local peasant dances for which he had a passion. So while waiting for me to finish the sum, he would drift about in the gloom of the room, practising fencing stances or complicated dancing steps, a habit that I found disconcerting to say the least, and to which I shall always attribute my inability to do mathematics. Place any simple sum before me, even now, and it immediately conjures up a vision of George's lanky body swaying and jerking around the dimly lit dining room. He would accompany the dancing sequences with a deep and tuneless humming, like a hive of distraught bees. Left leg over, three steps right. Back round, down and up. Tiddle diddle umpty doo, he would drone as he paced and pirouetted like a dismal crane. Then suddenly the humming would stop, a steely look would creep into his eyes, and he would throw himself into an attitude of defence, pointing an imaginary foil at an imaginary enemy. His eyes narrowed, his spectacles a glitter. He would drive his adversary back across the room, skilfully avoiding the furniture. When his enemy was backed into a corner, George would dodge and twist around him with the agility of a wasp, stabbing, thrusting, guarding. I could almost see the gleam of steel. Then came the final moment, the upward and outward flick that would catch his opponent's weapon and twist it harmlessly to one side, the swift withdrawal, followed by the long, straight lunge that drove the point of his foil right through the adversary's heart. Through all this, I would be watching him, fascinated, the exercise book lying forgotten in front of me. Mathematics was not one of our more successful subjects. In geography, we made better progress, for George was able to give a more zoological tinge to the lesson. We would draw giant maps wrinkled with mountains and then fill in the various places of interest together with drawings of the more exciting fauna to be found there. Thus, for me, the chief products of Ceylon were tapirs and tea, of India, tigers and rice, of Australia, kangaroos and sheep, while the blue curves of currents we drew across the ocean carried whales, albatross, penguins and walrus, as well as hurricanes, trade winds, fair weather and fowl. Our maps were works of art. The principal volcanoes belched such flames and sparks one feared they would set the paper continents alight. The mountain ranges of the world were so blue and white with ice and snow that it made one chilly to look at them. Our brown sun-drenched deserts were lumpy with camel humps and pyramids and our tropical forests so tangled and luxuriant that it was only with difficulty that the slouching jaguars, lithe snakes and morose gorillas managed to get through them while on their outskirts emaciated natives hacked wearily at the painted trees, forming little clearings, apparently for the purpose of writing coffee or perhaps cereals across them in unsteady capitals. Our rivers were wide and blue as forget-me-nots, freckled with canoes and crocodiles. Our oceans were anything but empty, for where they had not frothed themselves into a fury of storms or drawn themselves up into an awe-inspiring tidal wave that hung over some remote palm-shaggy island, they were full of life. 
good-natured whales allowed unseaworthy galleons armed with a forest of harpoons to pursue them relentlessly. Bland and innocent-looking octopi tenderly engulfed small boats in their arms. Chinese junks with jaundiced crews were followed by shoals of well-dentured sharks, while fur-clad Eskimos pursued obese herds of walrus through ice fields thickly populated by polar bears and penguins. They were maps that lived, maps that one could study, frown over and add to, maps, in short, that really meant something. Our attempts at history were not at first conspicuously successful until George discovered that by seasoning a series of unpalatable facts with a sprig of zoology and a sprinkle of completely irrelevant detail, he could get me interested. Thus I became conversant with some historical data which, to the best of my knowledge, have never been recorded before. Breathlessly, history lesson by history lesson, I followed Hannibal's progress over the Alps. His reason for attempting such a feat, and what he intended to do on the other side, were details that scarcely worried me. No, my interest in what I considered to be a very badly planned expedition lay in the fact that I knew the name of each and every elephant. I also knew that Hannibal had appointed a special man not only to feed and look after the elephants, but to give them hot water bottles when the weather got cold. This interesting fact seems to have escaped most serious historians. Another thing that most history books never seem to mention is that Columbus's first words on setting foot ashore in America were, Great heavens, look, a jaguar! With such an introduction, how could one fail to take an interest in the continent's subsequent history? So George, hampered by inadequate books and a reluctant pupil, would strive to make his teaching interesting so that the lessons did not drag. Roger, of course, thought that I was simply wasting my mornings. However, he did not desert me, but lay under the table asleep while I wrestled with my work. Occasionally, if I had to fetch a book, he would wake up, get up, shake himself, yawn loudly and wake it, wag his tail. Then, when he saw me returning to the table, his ears would droop and he would walk heavily back to his private corner and flop down with a sigh of resignation. George did not mind Roger being in the room, for he behaved himself well and did not distract my attention. Occasionally, if he was sleeping very heavily and heard a peasant dog barking, Roger would wake up with a start and utter a raucous roar of rage before realising where he was. Then he would give an embarrassed look at our disapproving faces. His tail would twitch, and he would glance around the room sheepishly. For a short time, Quasimodo also joined me for lessons, and behaved very well as long as he was allowed to sit in my lap. He would drowse there, cooing to himself, the entire morning. It was I who banished him, in fact, for one day he upset a bottle of green ink in the exact centre of a large and very beautiful map that we'd just completed. I realised, of course, that this vandalism was not intentional, but even so I was annoyed. Quasimodo tried for a week to get back into favour by sitting outside the door and cooing seductively through the crack, but each time I weakened, I would catch a glimpse of his tail feathers, a bright and horrible green, and harden my heart again. Achilles also attended one lesson, but he did not approve of being inside the house. He spent the morning wandering about the room and scratching at the skirting boards and door. Then he kept getting wedged under bits of furniture and scrabbling frantically until we lifted the object and rescued him. The room being small, it meant that in order to move one bit of furniture, we had to move practically everything else. 
After a third upheaval, George said that as he had never worked with Carter Patterson and was unused to such exertions, he thought Achilles would be happier in the garden. So there was only Roger left to keep me company. It was comforting, it's true, to be able to rest my feet on his woolly bulk while I grappled with a problem. But even then it was hard to concentrate, for the sun would pour through the shutters, tiger striping the table and floor, reminding me of all the things I might be doing. There around me were the vast empty olive groves echoing with cicadas, the moss-grown stone walls that made the vineyards into steps where the painted lizards ran, the thickets of myrtle alive with insects and the rough headland where the flocks of garish goldfinches fluttered with excited piping from thistlehead to thistlehead. Realising this, George wisely instituted the novel system of outdoor lessons. Some mornings he arrived carrying a large furry towel and together we would make our way down through the olive groves and along the road that was like a carpet of white velvet under a layer of dust. Then we branched off onto a goat track that ran along the top of a miniature cliff until it led us to a bay, secluded and small, with a crescent-shaped fringe of white sand running round it. A grove of stunted olives grew there, providing a pleasant shade. From the top of the little cliff, the water in the bay looked so still and transparent that it was hard to believe that there was any at all. Fishes seemed to drift over the wave-wrinkled sand as though suspended in mid-air, while through six feet of clear water you could see rocks on which anemones lifted frail coloured arms and hermit, cra hermit crabs moved, dragging their top-shaped homes. We would strip beneath the olives and walk out into the warm bright water to drift face down over the rocks and clumps of seaweed, occasionally diving to bring up something that caught our eye, a shell more brightly coloured than the rest or a hermit crab of massive proportions wearing an anemone on his shell like a bonnet with a pink flower on it. Here and there on the sandy bottom grew rib-shaped beds of black ribbonweed and it was among these beds that the sea slugs lived. Treading water and peering down, we could see below the shining narrow fronds of green and black weeds, growing close and tangled, over which we hung like hawks suspended in air above a strange woodland. In the clearing, among the weed bed, lay the sea slugs, perhaps the ugliest of the sea fauna. Some six inches long, they looked exactly like overgrown sausages, made out of a thick brown carunculated leather. Dim primitive beasts that just lie in one spot, rolling gently with the sea's swing, sucking in seawater at one end of their bodies and passing it out at the other. The minute vegetable and animal life in the water is filtered off somewhere inside the sausage and passed to the simple mechanism of the sea slug's stomach. No one could say that the sea slugs led interesting lives. Dully they rolled on the sand, sucking in the sea with monotonous regularity. It was hard to believe that these obese creatures could defend themselves in any way, or that they would ever need to, but in fact they had an unusual method of showing their displeasure. Pick them up out of the water, and they would squirt a jet of seawater out of either end of their bodies, apparently without any muscular effort. It was this water pistol habit of theirs that led us to invent a game. Each armed with a sea slug, we would make our weapons squirt, noting how and where the water struck the sea. Then we moved over to that spot, and the one who discovered the greatest amount of sea fauna in his area won a point. Occasionally, as in any game, feeling would run high, indignant accusations of cheating would be made and denied. It was then we found our sea slugs useful for turning on our opponent. Whenever we'd made use of the sea slug's services, 
We always swam out and returned them to their forest of weed. Next time we came down, they would still be there, probably in exactly the same position as we'd left them, rolling quietly to and fro. Having exhausted the possibilities of the slugs, we would hunt for new shells for my collection or hold long discussions on the other fauna we'd found. George would suddenly realise that all of this, though most enjoyable, could hardly be described as education in the strictest sense of the word, so we would drift back to the shallows and lie there. The lesson then proceeded, while the shoals of little fish would gather about us and nibble gently at our legs. So the French and British fleets were slowly drawing together for what was to be the decisive sea battle of the war. When the enemy was sighted, Nelson was on the bridge bird-watching through his telescope. He had already been warned of the uh, Frenchman's approach by a, uh, a friendly gull. Eh? Um, oh, um, a, a greater black-backed gull, I think it was. Well, the ships manoeuvred round each other. Of course, they couldn't move so fast in those days, for they, they did everything by sail, no engines. No, no, not even outboard engines. The British sailors were a bit worried because the French seemed so strong, but when they saw that Nelson was so little affected by the whole thing that he was sitting on the bridge labelling his bird egg collection, they decided that there was really nothing to be scared about. The sea was like a warm, silky coverlet that moved my body gently to and fro. There were no waves, only this gentle underwater movement, the pulse of the sea rocking me softly. Around my legs the coloured fish flicked and trembled and stood on their heads while they mumbled at me with toothless gums. In the drooping clusters of olives a cicada whispered gently to itself, and so they carried Nelson down below as quickly as possible, so that none of the crew would know he'd been hit. He was mortally wounded, and lying below decks with the battle still raging above, he murmured his last words, Kiss me, Hardy. And then he died. What? What? Oh, oh, yes. Uh, well, he had already told Hardy that if anything happened to him, he could have his bird's eggs. So that, though England had lost her finest seamen, the, the battle had been won, and it had far-reaching effects on Europe. Across the mouth of the bay, a sun-bleached boat would pass, rowed by a brown fisherman in tattered trousers, standing in the stern and twisting an oar in the water like a fish's tail. He would raise one hand in lazy salute, and across the still blue water you could hear the plaintive squeak of the oar as it twisted, and the soft clop as it dug into the sea. Mm -hmm.